Please turn in your Bibles with me to the sixth chapter of the Gospel of John. John chapter 6, and this morning I'll be reading verses 1 through 21. Please give your attention to God's Word. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii would not be enough bread would be would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, They said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. In my comfortable secure and protected lifestyle, I don't often experience intense fear. But I did have one of those rare, terrifying experiences just a couple of weeks ago. It happened in my dentist's office. I don't normally fear dental appointments. And this time I was just going in to have a couple of small cavities filled. I thought, no big deal. Well, when I got there, I was assigned a new dentist, a actually very tiny woman, but she had the bedside manner of a drill sergeant. And she, being because she was so small, she put me in that dentist chair. You know how they have to get it in the right position for them to work? Well, for her, that right position was, was about a 45-degree angle for me with my head down. And then... She had her assistant there, and of course, and she had her tools to go to work on the cavities in my mouth. 
And she had her tools there and her assistant there with, of course, that that water gun they stick into your mouth and the other hose that's supposed to suck the water out before it drowns you. And as she got to work in there, I realized that the cavities that she was working on were in the very last teeth at the back of my mouth, which is right next to my throat. And so in order to get to those cavities, she and her assistant had to get their hands way into my mouth and those tools and those hoses way into my mouth. And she started yelling at me because I wasn't getting my mouth open enough for all this stuff. And so what she did, I've never had this done before. She actually took this, this black piece of plastic, like a wedge, and shoved it down into my mouth to hold my mouth open. I think it was about two notches farther than it's supposed to open. And so this is my position, you know, 45 degrees, my head down, my mouth open beyond where it's supposed to be, and all this stuff in my mouth. And I don't know if you've ever had cavities in the last teeth in your mouth or not, but that is uncomfortably close to your throat. And so they're shooting this water in there, and I literally, it's the closest I've ever felt in my life to feeling like what it must feel like to drown. I really thought I was gagging on everything that's in there, and especially that water. I really felt like I was going to drown. And it was this really intense fear, and I spent, and she was in there a long time, and I spent that whole time just exercising, with praying, and I'm saying, Lord, give me self-control, because every nerve in my body wanted to throw that stuff out of my mouth, get rid of that wedge. I was, it was intense fear, and I just, you know... I kept thinking, this must be what waterboarding feels like. It really, you know, that's how they torture terrorists, you know. It really, I mean, the way I've heard it described, that's probably the closest I'll, hopefully, hopefully the closest I'll ever come to experiencing that. And it just, you know, it made me realize, feeling that intense fear and wrestling with it, I live such an easy life, such an easy, comfortable life. I don't have to face fears day in and day out. Most of us don't. We get little flashes of intense fear, maybe when a car pulls out in front of us unexpectedly or a large flash of lightning and thunderclap hit unexpectedly. We'll feel a flash of that fear, but so much of the time we feel none of that. Some people live with irrational fears, phobias, like arachnophobia or agoraphobia or xenophobia, but most of us don't live with that day in and day out. Some of us face real fears, rational fears, based on circumstances, fears of abuse or fears of disease or starving or violent crime. But when you think about it, aren't a lot of the things that you do day in and day out at least partially motivated by fear? Even simple things like getting dressed in the morning. The clothes that you choose, the makeup you put on, the way you comb your hair, isn't there a fear at the root of that motivation, a fear of being embarrassed, a fear of not fitting in? Or when you do your work in the workplace or schoolwork in the classroom, isn't there a fear that's at the root of a lot of that motivation, a fear of failure, fear of rejection? Even when you interact with people all day long, isn't a lot of the motivation, the fear of rejection, the fear of ridicule, the fear of loneliness. A lot of what we do in life is motivated by fear. And I think that's something we need to recognize 
before we can even begin to learn how to overcome those fears. Throughout our study of the Gospel of John, we have seen that John was very selective in writing about the miracles that Jesus did. Jesus did so many miracles. As John himself says, you couldn't fill the books of all the world with all the things that Jesus said and did. But he very carefully chooses just a handful of miracles. He's assuming that you have read the other Gospels because John wrote the last one. He assumes you you know all the other. But he chooses certain miracles because they suit his purpose of revealing in a powerful way the majesty and the glory of the Son of God. And so when we come to a miracle, there are so few of them in the Gospel of John that he relates. When we come to them, we need to think deeply about what those miracles point us to. Because as John keeps driving home, and I've told you over and over again, the miracles are signs The main purpose of the miracle is not the momentary alleviation of suffering or need or want. The main purpose of the miracles that Jesus did was to teach us, to show us, to reveal to us who he is and what he had come to do and what he continues to do. They're signs. And here in chapter 6, we get two miracles back to back. Of the very few they reveal, we get two of them here in this passage. One of them was so important that it's the only miracle that all four gospel writers include in their gospel up until the point of his suffering, his trial, his crucifixion, and resurrection. This is the only miracle that's recorded in all four of the gospels up to that point. And the purpose of these two signs is to point us to a deeper spiritual truth about who Jesus is. And we're going to see that they address two basic fears in our life. The fear of want, not having what we need to live our lives in this, in this world. The fear of want, and it addresses the second fear, which is the fear of tragedy, of sudden loss, sudden distress, danger. And what we're going to see is what Jesus is trying to say to us, just as he was trying to say to the disciples and the crowds in that day, is that the only way to overcome these fears that threaten to consume us every day of our lives, the only way to completely overcome them is to replace them with the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the only cure for the fear of want and the fear of tragedy in this life. As we come to chapter 6, it's interesting, if you compare Gospels, John has hit the fast-forward button here. He actually skips over almost a whole year of Jesus' ministry. Again, because he has a very limited purpose in his writing. He's adding to, he's actually emphasizing what are in the other Gospels, and he's not trying to record everything for us. He skips over really what we call this the, the Galilean ministry, the greater Galilean ministry of Jesus. He skips over almost all of it. This is the very last public sign that Jesus does while he's in Galilee. From a human perspective, this was the high point of his earthly popularity. There were unprecedented crowds flocking around him everywhere he went. If Jesus had come to be famous and popular, he had reached the total, ultimate pinnacle of his ministry at this point. 
But of course, as we will see, that's not why he came. It's all downhill downhill for Christ in public popularity from this point to the point of the cross. We learn it from if, as we compare this account with the accounts that are in the other Gospels, one thing we learn in context that John doesn't tell us here is that this is coming at a time of great spiritual need in the life of Jesus and the disciples. They are in danger of, from an earthly perspective, burnout, what we call burnout. We know from the other Gospels that Jesus had just sent his disciples out on their first major missionary trip. He had sent them out two by two to the villages of Israel to preach the gospel. And they had just come back from that experience. Add to that, they also had just heard that King Herod had executed John the Baptist. And you know how close Jesus and John the Baptist were. It was a time of spiritual exaltation and how God was training and using the disciples, but it was also a time of grief and sorrow and uncertainty. And so John and the other gospel writers make it clear here that Jesus was wanting to get himself and his disciples away from all of the crowds and the ministry and the healing and the teaching. They needed to go on a retreat. They really did. Spiritual retreats are very important. We need spiritual rest, not just physical rest, but emotional and spiritual rest on a regular basis. If Jesus and the apostles needed it, you need it. We all need it. We need to keep the Sabbath so that we get the weekly rest that God has provided for us. But we also need to do what Jesus and the disciples did, which is sometimes make an exceptional case to get away. Spend some extended time to refresh and refocus in our relationship and our ministry for the Lord. That's very clear from his example here. So as Jesus attempts to take his disciples on this retreat, you know, they, they leave the busy populated side, which was the western side, of the Sea of Galilee, and they go to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, which was more deserted, less populous, a time of wilderness, a place of wilderness where they could get away and have some rest. But the people wouldn't let them rest. The crowds followed them. And what's interesting to me as someone who practices and advocates guarding, protecting your time of rest and, and getting away and refreshing and refocusing What really impresses me here is that Jesus, when the crowds follow him around to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, doesn't say, get out of here. This is my time. I need to rest. Matter of fact, in in the other Gospels, it says Jesus saw the crowds coming, and instead of being annoyed, it says he looked upon them with compassion. He saw them as sheep without a shepherd. And what Jesus did is he sat down on the hillside And he began to teach, and he began to heal, the other Gospels tell us. He continued to minister to them, even when he was in great need. And as the evening came upon them, everyone became even more tired and even more hungry. And this hadn't been a planned gathering. 
There was no food available. What were they going to do? And this brings us to the first sign that Jesus does. One of his greatest miracles. And the purpose of this sign was to teach us that he alone can free us from the fear of want. From the fear of not having the physical resources we need in this life. In verse 5, we see another example of how Jesus taught his disciples through questioning. Remember how many times I've said this. When Jesus asks a question, it's not that he lacks the information. He asks the question in order to teach. He asks the question in order to get us to question our own life and look at our own heart to discern what's really going on. And so Jesus says to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And John goes on to add, unless we miss the point, he says he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. It was a test of Philip's faith. He wanted Philip and the other disciples to recognize that we are totally unable. He wanted Philip to realize that there was nothing he could do to meet the need that Christ wanted him to meet, which was to feed all these people. He wanted him to begin to realize that the source of all his needs are in the Son of God. Philip gets the first part about his inability, but he doesn't get the second. He says, he answers, 200 denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. John tells us there were 5,000 men there. Distinctly says there are 5,000 men. Undoubtedly, there were also women and children. And so most commentators believe that there were as many as 15,000 people in this crowd. Huge crowd of people. A denarii, as we know from the rest of Scripture, was one day's wages for a common worker. So Philip is saying 200 days' wages for a common worker would not provide enough food to give even every one of these people, even just a little morsel, let alone to meet their need. We often want to try to translate these terms into our own our own currency so we can kind of understand what they're saying here. And so I, I tried to figure this out. So you can say 200 days wages of a common worker, this is going to be a high number, but I just, the quickest way I could do is go to go online and figure out what's the median income of a of somebody in the U.S., and that's about $50,000. That's the median income. And that's obviously, compared to the rest of the world, very high. But even if you just take that number in our own rich culture, if you said $50,000, 200 days' wages would be about $27,500. $27,500 would be 200 days' wages, about two-thirds of a year. And so then, what's interesting is Andrew doesn't have any more faith than Philip, really, but at least he took the time to do inventory. So Philip, I mean, Andrew looks around, he says, hey, there's a boy here, he has five loaves of bread and two fish. But that, what's that? I mean, that, that wouldn't even feed the disciples, let alone a crowd of 15,000 people. Now, barley bread was actually the poor man's bread. It was the kind of bread you only ate if you had nothing else to eat. And it wasn't really a loaf. Most of the translations call them loaves. We think of a loaf of bread. That's not what they were. They you know, the bread in this day, they were more like pancakes. They look, or actually more like a pita, probably. <laughs> and, and so they're, you know, flat and circular. And so he had five of those loaves, and then the fish would have been fried and probably used like a spread, kind of like relish. And that's how they'd spread it on the, 
on the bread and then eat it in that way. And so if you take 27, and put it back in our terms, $27,500, divide it by 15,000 people, how far does that go? Well, it actually works out to about $1.80. Doesn't even buy you half a fish, fish sandwich at McDonald's. So, you know, that's, that's really, I mean, again, that's in our rich culture, so you'd have to kind of translate it down for that culture. Would never feed these people, even if they had 200 denarii to do it, and they didn't have anything like that. And so in that moment, after they've done their own self-assessment, done their own inventory, at that moment, Jesus gives them a lesson in his power to provide. He thanks the Father for the bread and fish. Interested here, just another side note, that Jesus lifts his eyes to heaven. We, We usually bow when we pray over a meal, but just the interesting thought that he looks to heaven and thanks the Lord for the provision that they have right there and about what the Lord's about to do. And as he distributes the bread and the fish, somehow, mysteriously, kind of like the water turning to wine, we don't know how, where, at what point in the process it happened, but somehow the bread and the fish kept multiplying and multiplying and multiplying to the point where everybody ate all that they wanted to eat and there were 12 basketfuls of fragments left over that people were too full to eat. This obviously wasn't a tied-me-over-till-supper kind of snack. Their cup ran over, illustrating that the Lord is able to provide far beyond what we consider to be fully satiated. If there is a need or a want in your life, and this is not to say that the Lord always keeps us fully satiated in every physical and material need in life, But the thing that we need to take away from this miracle is if there is a need, if there is a want in any physical provision in your life, it's not because the Lord doesn't know about it, and it's not because the Lord is not able to provide for it. It's because it's part of your calling. It's part of his greater work in your life. It's because he is either seeking to make you more like himself greater in holiness, or because he is using you to minister to other people in some way. But whatever the reason might be, it's for your good, if you're a child of God, or for the good of others, but it's not because the Lord doesn't know, or because the Lord isn't able to provide. We suffer want not as victims, The only reason we suffer want is as a means of maturity and service to others. Knowing all the time, by faith, that the Lord is able to provide far abundantly beyond our need. And that one day, he will. That every need we have one day will be met. And our cup will run over for eternity. Take note here that Jesus, another side note, that Jesus commands them to gather up the scraps so that nothing may be lost. Think about what that means. When you live in abundance, when God does meet your physical, material needs in abundance, like so many of us here, one way to show that you depend upon the Lord and you're thankful to the Lord for what he's given is not to waste what he's given. The crowds, of course, were wowed by this miracle. And once again, they exhibit 
a superficial profession of faith. I say superficial because at first their profession of faith sounds good. Verse 14, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Of course, referring to that great prophecy of Moses, that one day a prophet like him would be raised up by the Lord, and this one would be, the, and so to speak, the final word of God, the final revelation of, of redemption. Sounded good, but their actions betrayed their real heart and motivations because it says that they wanted to take Jesus to Jerusalem by force, even against his will if necessary. What a silly thought that they could do that. But they were going to take him to Jerusalem, put him on the throne, so that he, with all this power that he's exhibiting, could drive out the Romans once for all and make them happy, healthy, and wealthy here in this fallen world. That's the kind of Messiah that they were looking for. They saw Jesus as a great meal ticket, but they did not fear him as Lord. Next week, we're going to look at Jesus, how he, at length, begins to expound upon what it means, what the the feeding of the 5,000 with the few bread, what it really meant, what it really was pointing to, which is that he is the bread of life, and we'll delve into what the implications of that are. But let's move on to his second miracle this morning. The next miracle was not for the crowds, but for the faithful, for the disciples. And the second miracle was to teach his disciples that he alone can free us from the fear of tragedy. In verse 16, it says that Jesus rejects the fame and the popularity of the crowds. He doesn't seize upon the opportunity to build upon his fan base. Instead, he, re- he retreats to the mountain to pray. And he, we know from the other Gospels that he actually instructs his disciples to get in a boat and to sail back to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. But soon after they start rowing across the sea, the sea was about five or six miles wide. As they began to row across the sea very quickly and very suddenly, a violent storm comes upon them. The Sea of Galilee was known for this. The Sea of Galilee was 600 feet below sea level. And so what that does to the wind patterns is it actually intensifies them. And you have these sudden storms. The Sea of Galilee was known for these. And they were violent and they were always life-threatening. And the gospel, other gospel accounts tell us that this struggle, this fight for life against the waves and the winds went on until the third watch of the night. That's between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. They left it dark. That means they had been fighting for their lives against this storm for eight or nine hours at this point. And it says that John tells us they had gotten about three or four miles across, which means they still had a long way to go. That's all the farther they had made it in eight or nine hours. It was the darkest part of the night. And John says that while they're rowing, of course they'd be rowing this way, which means they'd be facing back the way they came. And as they're rowing, they saw a figure. Now, being the darkest part of the night, I'm imagining the only way they saw a figure from a distance was if the lightning was flashing. You know how spooky that you know, would feel. There you are, total pitch black, and the lightning flashes, and in the lightning flash, you see a figure walking on the mountains of waves towards you on the water. If you can put yourself in those sandals, you can imagine that would be terrifying. And what John communicates here is that they are more terrified of that figure walking on the water than they ever were of the storm at that point. 
until Jesus says, it is I. It is I. It's interesting, in the original Greek, it's basically what he says there when when it's translated, it is I. He says, I am, in two different ways, using two different verbs. I am, I am. I am who I am. He's using the Old Testament name Yahweh. I am the Lord. Therefore, do not be afraid. In other words, he's saying, believe in me, the Son of God. Believe in me, the creator of all things. Believe in me, the provider for all creatures. Believe in me, the Lord of the storm. The ruler of all things. And therefore, do not be afraid. And putting the accounts together again, we know he stepped into the boat and the storm stopped. And John even applies there was a miraculous movement to the shore at that moment. The Lord is not only our abundant provider, but he is also our constant protector. A few lessons from what we see in this miracle. First of all, the Lord was completely in control at all times. Never was he nervous about what the outcome would be. Secondly, this tragedy hit while the disciples were doing the will of their Lord. He told them to get in the boat at that time. He sent them out on the Sea of Galilee. They were exactly where he told them to be, and yet they were put in a life-threatening storm. Many times we will face tragedy while we are walking right in the, or sailing or whatever we're doing right in the middle of the will of God. This was a test of their faith. Thirdly, the disciples thought that the Lord was absent and unaware while they were fighting against the storm. I imagine many times they thought, only if Jesus were here, only if he had come with us in this boat, where is he when we need him? Do you know where he was? He was out on the mountain praying for them the whole time. And he intervened in his perfect timing and delivered them through it. The disciples thought that he was absent and unaware, but he was always aware, and he tested them as far as he wanted to test their faith, and then he delivered them. That's how the Lord always works in tragedy, in disaster, in suffering. Now let me underline as I close that these promises of God, the Lord, as our provider, as Jesus Christ, as our provider and our protector, these are promises for God's children. Only God's redeemed children can claim these promises. And that's based on the far greater assurance that only Jesus Christ, not only can he deliver us from the fear of want, not only can he deliver us from the fear of tragedy, But much more importantly, much more foundationally in life, he delivers us from the fear of condemnation, eternal condemnation. Jesus addressed that directly in Matthew chapter 10. Hear his words, beginning in verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. 
And then he addresses those who do trust in Christ. He says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my father who is in heaven. You notice there how he equates fearing God with acknowledging Christ as the Lord and the Savior. Fearing the Lord is acknowledging Christ before men and God the Father. Seeing him for who he is. Yahweh, I am who I am. The Lord of creation, the Lord of providence, the Lord of redemption. And trusting in him. As Paul says in Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He has taken the condemnation that we deserve for our sins upon himself as he hung on the cross in our place and God's wrath, God's justice was poured out upon him. Therefore, the greatest fear, really the only fear that Jesus said we should be concerned about in life is the fear of God's wrath and condemnation It's been dealt with at the cross for those who trust in Christ. And so then John, one of my favorite passages in the New Testament, John chapter 4. If you are free from the fear of condemnation because of your faith in Christ and his death on the cross, here's what what John says to you in 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also we are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved. The gospel is the key to overcoming every fear in this life. If you need not fear the condemnation of God, but rather abide in the love of God through Jesus Christ, then you need not fear want, you need not fear tragedy. You are secure in Christ. Any want in your life right now, any tragedy in your life right now, is there by the loving, sovereign will of your Lord. And it's for your good and for your ministry to others. And when you have suffered for a little while, he will deliver you in his perfect timing. And your cup will runneth over for all eternity. That's how you overcome fear. I'll close with the words of Philippians 4. We read some of them. Bert read some of them earlier. Let me close with the part of that chapter 4 where Paul tells us where he finds the source of all of his contentment in the midst of his incredible suffering and tragedy. Listen to what he said. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret to facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's the source of the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. The peace of God that will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The fear of the Lord, the Bible tells us, is the beginning of wisdom. 
It is also the end of all earthly fears. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your words of assurance today. Forgive us for our anxieties. Forgive us for taking our eyes off of our Lord, our protector, our provider, and our redeemer. Teach us to rest in his finished work and to trust in him in all of the want and tragedy that we face in this life. And may he be glorified as others see us depending upon him and trusting in him alone. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.